As a young person, Myrna remembers watching an episode of Man Alive, in which the show's host asks an Indigenous man about his experience with the Canadian justice system. The young man's response? It was a white man who arrested me, a white man that defended me, a white man who sent me to prison, and a white man who locked the door. It was only after I was in prison did I see any of my people. This man's story left a lasting impression on Myrna, and it's this racism, exclusion, and overrepresentation of Indigenous people in our prisons and justice system that prompted her to pursue a career in law. Myrna spent most of her legal career working in Indigenous communities. Throughout her legal career, Myrna has gained insight into trauma, its impact on memory, communication, and behavior, and the significant difference applying a trauma-informed approach has on survivors who entrust her to witness their pain, receive their stories, and assess their evidence. Trauma-informed lawyering is deeply rooted in empathy, and it's an approach that's not only important for lawyers, it's applicable to leaders in large and small organizations working to create diverse and inclusive work environments. Myrna now has her own legal practice in North Vancouver and is a creator, producer, and host of the Trauma-Informed Lawyer podcast. In today's episode, we learn more about Myrna's experience as an Indigenous woman in corporate Canada. And through our conversation, we touch on human resources performance review process, the growing trend of Black women, Indigenous women, and women of color leaving corporate Canada to start their own organizations, and the impact of this move of women out of corporate Canada on corporate Canada. Hi, Myrna. It's a pleasure to have you today. I'm thrilled to speak to you and have um, the opportunity to learn more about what you've been doing over the last 20 years in your career. Perhaps we can start our conversation by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and your journey and how you got to where you are today. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I'll see what I could do about covering 20 years in about two minutes. Um, (laughs) You have more time. I'll give you a little more time than that. (laughs) So maybe I'll just begin by, first off, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me to have a conversation about the work I do on this awesome new podcast of yours, which I think is so vital. We need to be having these conversations about diversity, like real diversity and bringing uh, women of color and Indigenous women, racialized women to the forefront of conversations when we're talking about leadership. So thank you so much for doing the work you do. Uh, I'm a lawyer by training. That was what I set out to do at 15. And now at 47, it's what I still do. I was fortunate to have a lot of people come into my life at the right times to open doors for me. And I honestly thought I was going to advance Indigenous rights, that that was what I was going to build my career on. Because I liked reading, I liked writing, I liked research, I was really good at those things, and I just thought it was a really good fit. And I was also terrified, like terrified of public speaking, uh, terrified of bringing attention to myself, and really I think all of that just, it originates from growing up in in a life, in an environment that brought a lot of trauma to my door, and so you know, when I went into law school, I was highly traumatized. I was terrified. And, you know, fear really was a, my motivator, fear of poverty, fear of loss of opportunity, fear of restrictions on my freedom. And, you know, I was a single mom with three kids when I went into law school. uh, And it was really tough. And so, 
just thinking now about all that I had overcome and dealt with just to succeed, really, I think I'm just going to pat myself on the back because that was like, that was an achievement uh, that I don't often think about. However, like I said, I didn't really want to stand in anybody's spotlight. I didn't want to bring attention to myself. I just wanted to sort of find a back corner somewhere, put my head down, go to work. And what I realized very shortly into my into my articling position and into the practice of law is that the work I was doing really didn't resonate with me on a deeper level. And I wanted to work directly with Indigenous people. Like I wanted to sit with them. I wanted to work with them. I wanted to help them resolve legal issues. And then it just came to mind that I should go home, like leave Vancouver, go back home to northern Saskatchewan. Like there's no shortage of Indigenous people in need of legal assistance there. And so uh, for a short time, I became a defense lawyer. Then I became a Crown prosecutor. I did that for, um, I don't know, three, four years. And then I moved on, became a residential school adjudicator in the independent assessment process. It was really the experience of prosecuting sex crimes as a Crown and being an adjudicator, uh, which required me to sit with survivors of historical sexual abuse and trauma and really pull their stories from them and evaluate their evidence for the purposes of determining what amount of money the government would have to compensate them for the level of abuse and harm that they experienced. And it was in doing that work that I realized Law school did not prepare me for tra- like for sitting with people who had trauma. Law school did not prepare me for understanding that my own traumas could be a barrier to effective lawyering and you know, and so I did a lot of harm. I would say I did a lot of harm to the people who I I worked with because I didn't know better and I was just simply trying to work with their legal issues while overlooking uh, their humanity because that was essentially what I was taught in law school. And then then one day my life just spiraled into a deep abyss and all the traumas of my life combined or slammed up against the traumas of others and it was the perfect storm of just misery, misery and uh, despair. And I'm fortunate that I was able to take time away from work and get intensive therapy and come out of that place because I know a lot of people don't come out of that place. From that moment forward, I would say I've been in a state of emotional and spiritual recovery. And I constantly look back and think about how unavoidable my experience like was and the harm that I did, how I could I could have avoided it in so many ways had I been properly prepared to advocate and work with people who had experienced extensive traumas. And so that is really how I became the trauma-informed lawyer uh, that I am today. And out of that came my podcast uh, by the same name, The Trauma-Informed Lawyer. And I simply 
just have a passion now for talking to anyone who will listen, um, but with a very intentional focus on legal educators, law students, lawyers, and judges about how we need to change our approach to become more relational, less transactional, and to recognize the humanity and the people who come into our courtrooms, and really that we ought to all be guided by the principle that we must deliver our services in a way that does no further harm. So we're talking about bringing humanity into the courtroom um, and working with your clients from the perspective of empathy. How do you think that relates with what we see in the corporate world, in, or particularly corporate Canada, and the conversations that we're having about diversity and inclusion now in corporations and organizations, both for profit and not for profit? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, well, let me take a stab at it. Um, I think, you know, when I think about corporate Canada, well, just corporations and capitalism and consumerism, I, I really see very little room for empathy because those places, those environments, that my, my word escapes me, but that methodical. Yes, methodical. Okay. So like you, English is also a second language. So sometimes words, like I'm, I have a hard time pronouncing certain words. But what I'm saying is that those environments really attract a lot of ego and decisions and behaviors motivated by ego. And, you know, I'm very skeptical when I look at corporations and capitalists and people who promote consumerism and next to it, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Because in my experience and the experience, I think, of a lot of the clients that I do workplace investigations for uh, on the issue of whether there's systemic racism in the workplace or in the organization, or if there's a issue with policy that doesn't reflect that possibility is these environments that purport to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're not going far enough. And how that shakes down for people of women of color, or people of color or indigenous women, that that language really then translates to trauma and alienation and exclusion. And so when we hear diversity, equity, inclusion, it's like back up and really examine what does that mean? How are you ensuring the success of the people that you are attracting? Because, you know, in my view and in the view of many others, like that's only a halfway commitment. That's not the entire thing. Once you attract people and you bring them into your organization and they're reflecting some diversity or the diversity you're seeking, then what are you doing to keep them there? You need to have some type of retention strategy and you need to be willing to do the courageous work of looking to see how your institution is willing to reflect the values and the approaches and the cultures and the practices of these diverse people. You know, as a old colleague of mine once used to say, we need more brown faces and white spaces. <laughs> and I'm, and I would think, well, no, we need to do one better is we, what we need to do is we need to actually change the color of that white space. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I struggle with some of the same things that you, you speak of in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, having worked in corporations, you know, I hear a lot of conversation, but then there's that resistance to the hard work and the need to really genuinely be open to understanding the other person's experience and creating space for that experience. Does that mean that we, we give up? I mean, because what I see is a lot of, uh, people of color, women of color, indigenous people, uh, considering leaving the work for, uh, leaving uh, the corporate world and starting their own companies. I mean, my father did that. He left the corporate world frustrated and started his own company. And we see a lot of that now. Um, but then my fear is we're left with the same types of organizations and these corporations still make some of the big decisions around how capital is distributed, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I hear your point. And I think uh, there's a lot of Indigenous people as well who don't see themselves within certain structures, and they leave and start their own businesses and, um, and become self-employed. However, I think to answer your question, what it comes down to is relationship. Like we need to build relationships on both sides. There has to be a commitment to building relationships, to learning what it is that you don't know that you ought to know in order for your organization or your corporation to reflect the people that you target in your sales or that you target as stakeholders or that you target as, you know, as partners in order to, to fully understand who it is you're delivering services to you need to build relationships with those communities. You know, I'm always going to go back to talking about the law and justice. We're hearing a lot right now about systemic racism in the pol- in the policing for- services. So within the RCMP, but also within others, we're also hearing a lot about racism. And I really think that what it comes down to is We need people within these organizations who come from the communities that they work in. So that comes down to relationship. Um, If I was the head of the RCMP, for example, instead of just sending these young white kids from Kitchener, Ontario, out of depot into, you know, a very remote, isolated, indigenous community, I would be first off looking for people from that community to recruit them into policing if they're so interested and then bringing them back to their communities. And I think it's the same thing in big and small organizations. You want to build relationships with people from the the communities that you were serving or that you were working with and you want to mentor them, you want to recruit them, you want to retain them, you want to maintain relationships with them. And I think that's really what it comes down to. I agree. It is most certainly relationships. And I've been reading more and more about how human resources, um, a number of racialized employees, when they go to human resources, don't receive the response that they're 
hoping for, which is, is a desire to learn and understand what they're experiencing. It's labeled a complaint. And then there's a defensiveness in terms of making that, minimizing that complaint. So I find when we label things complaints, like when, if I go to human resources about a topic related to feeling marginalized or feeling, um, that my, uh, my position isn't being looked at or I feel like I am experiencing bias, I, I'm supposed to take a complaint, but is there a, another way of having these conversations so they're not complaints where you're not raising them as a complaint and um, and you're able to move them forward in something that's productive? Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> again, you're asking a really, I'm you sorry. know, a, a bit. No, it's okay. Like these are big, big questions that I think everybody should be asking and having conversations about. They're real conversation starters. I don't know that I could give you one answer because there is no one size fits all. But I do think it begins with having organizational leaders, whether it's boards of directors, or it's members of a judicial council to sit back and, and look at their people and their team and go, are we reflecting the diversity of the population that we serve or that we're working in or that we intend to provide, you know, what goods and services to? If not, if you're looking around the room and you see a table that's largely white, then maybe I would say you need to sit and go, okay, why don't we have more diversity at this table? What are the barriers? So identify what your barriers are to people. Are people applying? If they're not applying, why aren't they applying for positions within your organization? If they um, are applying, but they're not getting through, well, then why is that? Like there has to be, I think, an investment in examining what the barriers are, because there are so many things that organizational leaders don't know, and they really need to hire people who are trained to identify systemic barriers. That's, I think, the first step is having these conversations, identifying uh, where there uh, where there are definitely some gaps. So like if you're looking, if you're talking about a board of directors, you're looking around the table and they're all white. Okay, we've got no one uh, who's diverse on this board. That's a problem. What are we going to do about it? And I think some of the barriers to speaking up is that you don't want to be labeled angry or difficult to work with, but you do need a space to be able to speak about what you're experiencing so that you can continue to thrive in that environment. Um, in terms of, of this type of uh, setup where where you are labeled angry or difficult, have you ever experienced that where you've been in a situation, a work environment where you're not able to bring your full self um, to work and your communication style is mistaken to be different than what it's intended to be? And, and how have you managed and um, worked through that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't know actually of any Indigenous woman who hasn't been in that position, in that situation. Like, and so for that reason, I have largely looked for positions where I could work independently. You know, I don't have to stay in one location. Like, for example, when I was a crown prosecutor in Saskatchewan, I often took on the role of like the roving crown. So I would just go from office to office and I essentially worked out of my bag. Um, so I didn't have to be you know, getting involved in office dynamics, because, you know, I knew that some people thought I was too direct, that I was too sort of too too brash. And I think that was because 
you know, my email communications were just to the point. And I think part of that is, you know, I'm very type A. And if I'm busy, I don't have a lot of time to be like, hi, Susie, how has your how was your weekend? I hope your dog's doing okay. What are you thinking about the weather? By the way, when do you think I might have that report? I'm one of those people who's like, do you know when the report's going to be ready? Send. And it's got nothing to do with, you know, me having a problem with Susie. It's, I've got a lot of balls in the air and I just, I need to know when I can expect things. But people personalize those communications and who knows, maybe I'm in the wrong and maybe someone will hear this um, interview and then call me with tips about how to, (laughs) how to engage in softer communication (laughs) over email. But it's just my nature to be very to the point. What ends up happening is if you don't sort of fit the way the office expects you to communicate or the way they expect you to engage with each other, labeled me as somebody who wasn't a team player, I would say, you know, as a result, that is why I, I, I have chosen to work alone. Like I have my own business. I'm my own boss. I'm grateful every day for this ability because I know not everyone has this opportunity and, you know, and I, I love that I can show up and engage with people how I want to, when I want to. And I, I have the um, power to close off that engagement when, when it needs to be. And you don't have that same kind of freedom when you work within an organization. And see, I, I mean, that's, I think what ultimately uh, a number of people choose is that they, they leave because then they have the freedom to, to be themselves. What I find unfortunate is that in, like, in our conversations that we've had, I find you so interesting, so engaging. And I think it's unfortunate that you, you're not a part of a team in a corporation because I think that a corporation could learn so much from what you have to offer. And, I, I think it's unfortunate that they, that corporations didn't create a feeling of belonging. Cause I think, and the feeling of not belonging has so many implications on so much around you. Uh, and, and I, I understand that. Yes. I mean, working from working on your own gives you so much freedom and we all are, are looking for that freedom. But I think that corporations miss out when they don't recognize all of the talent that's leaving the organization because they're not able to create that feeling of belonging. Yeah, definitely. I mean, something I often tell clients is if you want to attract these high caliber Indigenous employees or persons of color, then you have to do the incredibly important work of looking to see how the environment is willing to change and transform to reflect this new uh, perspective coming in because you don't want to absorb these people into a culture that's already existing. You want to adapt your culture, transform your culture um, to reflect diverse perspectives, right? Like that's so important. And if you don't do that, people are gonna feel like they don't belong particularly if you bring, say, for example, an Indigenous person into a largely white organization where nobody maybe wants to hear about Indigenous issues, or when they hear about it, they take a really strong position and say, like, and shut it down. And, you know, ultimately, that's going to lend itself to uh, this person, the sole Indigenous person feeling excluded, unwelcome. And then, 
any of their communications could become really highly um, charged because they're going to feel targeted or labeled or under attack. And then it can culminate into just a parting of ways, right? Yeah. And, and what's interesting also, what you what you bring up is for in, in Indian culture, not, not all parts of Indian culture, like uh, South Asian culture, we grew up in a family where you're to the point, you're blunt, you know, oh, you're, you know, they'll say something like, oh, you're gaining too much weight, like uh, things that maybe aren't common to say. And so I wonder if, if we're looking at culture and thinking about diverse and inclusive cultures, we need to think more about different ways of communicating different styles of email and being okay with that, realizing that you grew up in a culture where this is how you communicate. And it's, and that's okay. I grew up in a culture where you were direct. You didn't use a lot of words. You got to the point. Um, perhaps we need to realize that if we want diversity in corporations that reflects diversity in Canada, we need to realize that diversity means diversity in all ways and how we communicate and how we, you know, uh, how we have lunch, how we, uh, you know, thank yous or birthday parties or wedding showers or whatever it is that we do or celebrate at work. Because what, what you're talking about is, is not uncommon. I've heard a number of people talk about how their communication style was seen as this or that, and they can't quite understand why the impact is what it is. Yeah, and usually what ends up happening is before they leave, they will seek out other people of color and they have these sidebar conversations about how toxic the workplace is or what the problems are or how they, you know, it ends up being sort of a venting session um, and also looking for support. And so they go and they seek out some safe spaces to be honest about work experiences because there's a fear as well of like bringing forward these conversations you know, Robin Tiangelo wrote a book on white fragility, and it talks about how, you know, you don't want to say the R word to white, some white people, because um, they will immediately flag you as a problem and go, uh oh, um, you know, Sally said the R word today, I think we better watch how we communicate with her because she could create problems for us. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting about the R word, because until we started having more open conversations and we obviously have a long way to go. Uh, we'd often uh, hear people say, well, she's not racist, but, and I always thought, well, if you have to say she's not racist, but she said this, or he said this, then they may just be racist. I, I mean, <laughs> and I, we have to call it what it is, uh, but you're right. There's so much nervousness about using that word. And I think if we want to have open conversations, conversations we're going to need to use that word because some people feel like they're experiencing that and and they need to be able to say that they're experiencing that absolutely and it's also okay for an employer or an organizational leader to go wait a second I recognize that we haven't done all that we should have done and we commit to doing better and this is how we're willing to do it Let's begin by having these conversations. Let's begin by identifying the barriers. Let's find out why people are leaving. Let's find out why people aren't applying. Let's find out about what their experiences are when they're working with a white majority. Mm -hmm. Sorry, and I don't mean to, you know, come in with a, an opposing view. And it's not opposing. It's, I guess, in my experience, I he I've seen in corporations a lot of desire to have conversations. However, so 
I think sometimes um, in those conversations, people who are maybe saying things that can be considered microaggression uh, will will advocate for diversity, but then behind closed doors, they'll say something different, or they'll advocate for diversity, not recognizing that some of the, some of what they say is actually offensive. How do we do that where we take these conversations and they actually take hold as opposed to having these conversations? And this is a big question, like like the other questions, and I don't expect you to like these. I mean, I don't think any of us really have the answer to this. We're all kind of grappling with it because once you leave that conversation, how do you actually ensure it takes hold and starts to grow? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> that's a no, good question. and and I don't ex- like it's you know you you may have thoughts on that because I think that we're all struggling with that. I've sat in so many diversity inclusion councils where we've talked about what we're experiencing, yet it hasn't changed the experience of employees. And and sometimes you have to move diversity from the board because I see corporations that have diversity on the boards, yet that doesn't indicate or change the way management it looks. Management continues to look the same and the same issues exist. I'd love your thoughts on this from and your perspective on this. I think that the answers are a number of different answers, which you've talked about, how there are just a number of different ways of tackling this. So perhaps you can shed light on that. Well, I think, you know, there's a number of different ways you can come at it. I mean, there's an extreme way, which I think we all saw um, here in Canada recently with Brian Mulroney stepping away from his hosting job at CTV eTalk, right? Um, And that was after some conflict had surfaced between a black woman who is a social media influencer and his wife, who is also a social um, media influencer, you know, after that conflict came to the surface, you know, Brian Mulroney said, well, I acknowledge that there is not enough people of color in in these positions uh, in the entertainment industry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step away from this position and make space. And hopefully they replace me with a person of color, right? I mean, some people kind of applauded him for that. I, I didn't. <laughs> I, just thought, I just thought, well, that's so nice of you um, to step away from that, but also maintain um, this very um, this very public role, doing all this other stuff as a host and as an entertainer and as a you know you're still in the spotlight. And I don't think it it went far enough, but um, I mean, that's one extreme way. And I think there are some people out there who are probably looking around the table or looking around the courts and going, well, if I resign or I step away, um, I don't know that that's going to make any difference. And I hope people don't expect that from me. And I think there are some people who are there going, oh, well, am I part of the problem because this is my job and because I took this job? And absolutely, definitely not saying that. But in my experience, almost every significant advancement in my career has occurred because some somebody opened the door the gatekeeper was always a white person who opened the door for me. And I see the value of having white people be, I don't want to say allies, because I don't really know 
what that job description is exactly, but I definitely see the value in having relationships with white people in these leadership positions who serve as gatekeepers, whether they acknowledge it or not, because they can open doors and they can close doors. And I think it's really important that they acknowledge their privilege and their influence and their authority and start to really open doors, um, recognizing the barriers that exist for people of color who've never made it past the door before. And, And another piece is my podcast and yours. I mean, The more we talk about barriers, and in my context, one of the barriers to advancement, to connection, to relationship is trauma. Uh, Trauma in the courtroom, trauma in uh, law offices, trauma in law school for law students who are just trying to get an education. There's so many different ways that we can educate on racism and building relationships and on what meaningful um, inclusion looks like without using any of that language or even using the R word. Once we start looking at each other and recognizing the humanity in one another, then the stereotypes fall away and, you know, whatever your preconceived ideas are about the other um, has to be confronted I agree. I think it's such a beautiful way to end uh, end, end off the podcast um, is that we are hopefully eventually, well, not we are, but we eventually need to realize that there, sh- there isn't really an us. We're all in some way seeking some of the same things and there's more in common between all of us than there is not in common. And building those relationships allows us to see what we have in common. And once we see that, we start to remove and those uh, as you said, the biases fall away. I, I, I do think that um, the more we talk about it openly, the more we share, the more we try to understand each other, where each other comes from, and and understanding our our styles um, in terms of how we communicate come from a certain place. Um, the more we create a place where we can we can leverage the strengths of each other, because I. It pains me that someone like you isn't a part of a corporation that could benefit so much from what you have to say. Your podcast, The Trauma-Informed Lawyer, you bring up so many interesting points in that that are so relevant to what we're having conversations about in in so many organizations and corporations, both for-profit and not-for-profit. And so I'd, I'd love to see more people finding a place within an organization so they can help shape that organization. And so I'm hoping that our conversations and, and podcasts um, galvanize action so that we can create more community in, in uh, organizations and corporations and, and courthouses um, across our, our beautiful, vibrant, colorful country. Absolutely, absolutely. I am with you there. We need to just start with having a conversation, mm-hmm. having a conversation. And, uh, you know, people need to look at their little bubbles and in the, their various parts of this country and examine who are their relationships with? Do they have a tendency to befriend people who are like them? And who reflect their views and their backgrounds and the same privileges. And I find that, you know, that's a, it's an important point because even me looking um, in my network to to identify people to have conversations with on the podcast, I realized there wasn't a lot of diversity um, in terms of thought and background. And 
doing this podcast, I mean, I would have never had the opportunity to reach out to you. And we come from different worlds. We're in the same country, both Canadian, from different, you know, different backgrounds, different histories. And we have so much in common in terms of our perspective on what we wish for in the future. I thank you for your time. I have I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And I am looking forward to listening to more of your fantastic podcast. Please listen in to the Trauma Informed Lawyer. Uh, you'll find it on Spotify and also on Apple. And I wish you so much success uh, in everything you do. Thank you so much. And thanks again for having me on your new podcast, Her Climb. I'm going to be tuning in and I'm going to be like watching your posts on Instagram. So um, I'm definitely a fan of your work. So keep it up. 